Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 222. So glad you could join me. Today's guest, Bob Hickok, is here. We're all really excited for that. He'll be here with us in about five minutes. But before we get into say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed, ring the bell for notifications, leave reviews on iTunes or Spotify, um, tell your friends that this is a great episode, um, post it on social media tomorrow. If you're watching after the fact, you can do that too. Um, anything you do to help spread poetry around the internet would be greatly appreciated. It's really always helpful. Um, that's how people hear about shows, and they get to watch more, and you can stream this so many places. It's really nice to, to know about, so do share that with your friends if you're poetry lovers and your friends are too. Now, Dante Stefano is supposed to be here. I'm not sure where he is. We're going to take a look at his poem to start out. Uh, we always start out with a Poets Respond poem. And um, Dante, of course, was the guest on Rattlecast, I don't know, it was around 212 maybe, or 208, something like that, in August. So look back at his episode for that. This poem that he has this week, um, we'll go to it right now. Um, this poem... Um, is after reading that Merriam-Webster's 2023 word of the year is authenticity. And so a little reverie on that. Uh, really interesting that that is the word of the year. Um, I'll read his note first, then we'll read the poem. So about this, Dante says, Often lately, I've been teaching and reading and thinking about generative AI. Despite all I've read about Sam Altman, ChatGPT, etc., it's hard for me to imagine how this technology will transform our world. Reading the article makes about Merriam-Webster's Word of the Year further confirmed how enmeshed we are in this transformation already. Authenticity is a fraught term in poetry anyway, so I think this poem wandered into some of the fraughtness and complexity that comes with the terrain of lyric saying. For me, this is less a poem about AI than it is a poem about the ancient technology of poetic utterance in all its mystery. The word riz that I use at the end of the poem is an internet neologism added to Merriam-Webster this year, meaning romantic charm or appeal. And I'd never heard of that, even with, uh, you know, I have a 13-year-old daughter, so you'd think I'd hear all of the internet slang through her. I hadn't heard that one yet either, so I get to learn a word through this poem too. Here's Dante Stefano reading after reading that Merriam-Webster's 2023 word of the year is authenticity. Here we go. After reading that Merriam-Webster's 2023 word of the year is authentic. I wonder about the future poems I will read, generated by AI. The imperceptibly pixelated tulips pushing through the rich soil in them. The deepfake MFA bios attached to them like deflated orange balloons. The shining metaphors crowing from them as I open the app of my eyelids and scroll lithely from stanza to stanza. I wonder if I'll be able to notice in their red wheelbarrows full of roses how a chatbot has damasked every stem. I found the poem I'm writing now, tucked in the galley of a tiny schooner, circumnavigating the four chambers of my heart. It was wedged under a cask, of lime juice. It was written in the scrawl of a mad captain hell-bent on shipwreck or treasure or unspecified glory. It was found. It was wedged. It was written to explain a flower growing in me, 
a blue bonnet sprouting from my boot print, gently stretching skyward to touch the stars. But like all poems we humans fashion, from want and need and yes and must and what, it ended up saying something else beyond the arc of unsaying, something fevered and cut, rizzed up against the scurvy dark. Yeah, rizzed up against the scurvy dark. Great last line there. That was Dante Di Stefano, uh, his poem from uh, the poem of the day on Sunday from Poets Respond. Uh, I'm not sure where Dante is, but thanks so much for sharing that, Dante. Always a pleasure. And do check out that episode from August, a wonderful poet and teacher, um, Dante Stefano. Now we're going to take a quick break and go to our main guest, of course, Bob Hickok. So sit tight and I'll be right back with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Like I said, today's guest is Bob Hickok, one of my personal favorite poets, maybe my very absolute favorite poet, actually. It's always a pleasure to have him here. Um, Bob Hickok's 10th collection, Water Look Away, is right here. It was published by Copper Canyon Press this year. A two-time finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and recipient of the Bobbitt Prize from the Library of Congress. He's also been awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship, two National Endowment for the Arts of Poetry Fellowships, uh, and eight Pushkar Prizes, and his poems have been selected for inclusion in nine volumes of the Best American Poetry. He teaches at Virginia Tech, and uh, here he is, Bob Hickok. Hey, Bob, how you doing today? How are you? I'm great. It's great to have you back. I know you don't do a whole lot of readings and interviews. I was looking for some uh, more recent stuff. You mentioned on the last episode, and I should, I should have said that too, you were a guest on Rattlecast number 19 almost exactly four years ago. So if anybody wants to look back at that episode, I can't believe four years has gone by since then. No. But we were uh, fresh off the <laughs> – we were we had just started doing these shows. Uh, you were one of the early guests. We didn't even have dual uh, cameras, so you couldn't see me as you were talking. Um, but now you can, even though it's a very washed-out camera image. But um, but it's great to have you, and I really appreciate you coming on and, and doing this. You know, you don't, don't do many readings and events these days. Sure. Happy to be here. Although now I'm – while you were discussing uh, the last poem – the poem, response poem. Mm-hmm. The uh, a word came to mind that rhymes with riz, and I hope that's not part of the origin of the word riz. <laughs> that's a good point. I hadn't thought of that, and I think you. I had not that. either. I had seen that a number of times during the week, and it's only while you're talking that that unfortunate rhyme occurred. To me. You know, it's a YouTube star that they coined that term, and so I think I have a hunch that you might be right about the origin of that <laughs> word. Um, well let's hear a poem and and in typical uh, Bob Hickok fashion you don't want to read poems from Water Look Away which you didn't do last time either if you remember right Uh, (laughs) um, Hold Me was the the last book and you read poems from Red Rover on the last Rattlecast this time you just came out with Water Look Away but you want to read newer poems again Uh, do you want to start out with a poem just so we can get a sense of of what you're you're doing and we'd love to hear it Sure. Uh, this poem is called Yes Please Our cat with no eyes has urinary cystitis and drools and pees all over and can't or won't tell us when we should kill him. Perhaps my sudden desire for chocolate milk is meant to offset wondering how my aging parents are like or unlike our cat. But no matter what, I've yet to steal a car or boat or dirigible. 
So how can I claim to be living life to the fullest? And if one keeps a to-do list, shouldn't one of the items be to write a to-don't list? To don't get older, to don't lose patience with a yowling cat, to don't get stuck in a roundabout, even though life is a circle, mostly because life is a dodecahedron is too hard to spell. When I wake and pull up a chair to the bar of the morning, I usually ask for the usual, another chance to be part of something wonderful, baking bread, watching ants, thinking tradition is why a cat with no eyes still covers where his eyes were with his paws while he sleeps, to don't hate anyone, to don't not plant a million trees, to don't bury my parents without kissing them on the lips, to taste death, to taste life, to know the difference. And that was Bob Hickok. Yes, please. Another new poem. Um, and it's always great to hear those. I feel like I have, and, and I should say, to make everybody jealous, Bob sent me a packet of like 25 poems he might read. So I feel like I have a little mini chapbook to preview um, <laughs> what might be coming. I can imagine what that new book might be like. But let's talk a little bit, because this is the book that uh, Copper Canyon sent me, Water Look Away. I'll, I'll hold it up here where we can actually see. A beautiful, small book. Um, by Bob Hickok. It's really slight and concise um, and different in the style, you know, from the style that we usually see from you. Um, it's a lot shorter poems. Um, there's a th- narrative theme running through, so it's, it's novelistic in its arc. Um, and, um, and, and a lot of experimentation. There's, there's um, certain poems, for example, don't have a certain letter of the alphabet. There's things like that going on that you don't usually see from your work, which is usually a lot of like you know, perform stream of consciousness is kind of how it is. Like you dive into a subject and you get to sort of live inside the mind of Bob Hickok for a little bit with your poems. This seemed more planned out and and a different way of writing. So how did this book come to be? And and what was your experience with it? Why write it? That book was a, a lot of fun to write and a real surprise. Um, the poems, as they appear in the book, that's the sequence they were written in. Hmm. I didn't write anything else. I started writing that and finished it. And the first poem really kind of set the tone. And it was kind of an iteration of something that I think probably goes on for all writers, that some nth instance of what we tend to do, which I think for most of us tends to be kind of repetitive. Every now and then there's a poem that's very different. And I think a lot of us, if we think the poems work, end up cherishing these poems. The first poem I wrote was different, but it also opened me up, I think, to a number of kind of big things that had been kicking around in my head, in my life, mostly under the surface. Um, But that poem kind of opened me up to these things, including um, the topic of suicide. I am a survived suicide. Hmm. Um, And that, among other things, opened up. And I found myself writing through a couple characters and basically, like you said, creating a narrative um, that ended up being really interesting to me. But it wasn't 
planned out. It was the way it's similar to how I write is it was very much day to day. I didn't know what I was going to do on any given day, mm-hmm. but the tone remained the same and the connections built from day to day um, as I kind of told this story in a very weird kind of order. I mean, the book begins with a death, with a a suicide, Mm -hmm. which probably wasn't the smartest way to begin a narrative. But I I didn't know where I was headed with that first poem. Yeah, just so so people know, um, the the poem starts out with... um... Welcome home is a poem he's talking about. And then in the basement, an extension cord passed through a hole he'd bored. And it goes on like that with these, you know, short sentence fragment sentences, um, you know, moving through in a really short, shorter poem than we're used to seeing from you. And then uh, and it moves from there. Um, how so, so basically, this is sort of different than I imagined it, it might be. I imagine that maybe you wanted to try something different. And so you thought of having a narrative, but basically you took a, a you know the poem and just ran with that poem and, and let that poem go. Yeah, I had had something a kind of smaller version of this happened. Um, I forget which book. There's a book I have where, as part of it, I have a number of fifteen line poems, and I I happened to write a fifteen line poem, and I really liked the concision. I liked how it pushed me in a more lyrical direction. So I kept writing those every now and then. Mm-hmm. This had elements of that, but was far more um, of itself. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know that I'll ever have an experience like this, but it was it was really enjoyable to get kind of taken up into something that I've heard novelists talk about, just how the the novel consumes their lives. This had that impact on me to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was still the surprise of how I normally write. I really, I didn't, I don't think about writing when I'm done writing. And with this one, I, I didn't either. I didn't think about, okay, the next poem should do this or that. I would just kind of show up and it's like, okay, where, how, it was almost like I was adding parts to the bodies, to the lives of these people mm-hmm. every day. Yeah, that's really interesting. So you mentioned being a survivor of suicide. How much of this um, was was personal, if you don't mind me asking? And how much was fictionalized? Is there a, a way you can, you can answer that? It's 50-50. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the major events, I mean, again, suicide in my life, uh, a friend of mine, suicide impacted his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, a sense, a sense of loss. Some of the things that go on between the characters either are things I went through or people I'm close to went through. I also came to realize that even though the situations in the book are different from ones I've been through, in a lot of ways the loss that the people were the losses that the people in the book are dealing with are versions of losses that I've dealt with or watched other people deal with. Um, It's just, I'm kind of touching on those things through lives that are made up. Yeah, yeah. So, so if sort of fictionalized characters looking through the emotions and, and, and sort of exploring that process. Yeah. 
Um, and were you writing other poems in between them, or did this these come out like in succession too? No, it's however many poems there are. That's how many days it took to do this. And there was, um, I'm definitely in the first word, best word camp. Mm-hmm. Although there are huge parts of that that are absolutely bullshit. Um, the poems, I basically the way they are. It, in the book is the way they came out. Mm-hmm. So it was a really concentrated event. Yeah. And then there was something about the last poems, like, okay, it's done. Hmm. Wow. And the next day I, I moved on to something else. Yeah, well, it's amazing. I mean, it's the way that the subconscious is speaking through poetry. Like we, you know, as poets, what we're really doing is training ourselves to sort of be open to the symbolic way of thinking of our subconscious. And then it comes out and we have no idea what we're even writing about or why. But it's something that like, really, our right brain wanted to communicate with our left brain, I think, you know, it's it's something that the that that symbolic holistic understanding of the world knew but couldn't articulate in a way that, that we could sort of embody and understand completely. And then the, the artist comes through and is ex- expert at making that come to life. And that's what art really is, I think. Um, so, so really great testament to that. I really like the use of the word training in that context. Yeah. It brings to mind that the, the most effective way I've been able to speak of writing over the years is to liken it to athletics people training themselves to do something that is on the surface um, invariant, unvariant. Mm -hmm. If you, a layup is what it is, but in an actual game, you have people who are trying to stop you from doing that. So if you have to think about how you do that, if it, if it, that action is conscious, you're not going to be able to improvise on it. Mm -hmm. The actions, the, the, the way writing is in us, has to be deep and we have to get it in there by writing a lot but in the actual act of writing a poem it's highly performative mm-hmm. what have you done you know what do you do to get in that space because i think you might be the best at entering that space you know i mean it, Wake up. it sounded like you said that this book was written basically in like a month or however many poems there are you know one poem a day and and the whole collection is done. Um, and and it really, I mean, your poems seem to come out like that. Like there's these whole poems that emerge uh, from that process. Uh, what do you do to get into the right space? Um, is it is it just a matter of having sat down every day and so you're ready? Like your your subconscious yeah. knows like this is where I have to come out. <laughs> and so it's like, uh, oh, yeah. Let's do the math. I'm 63. Mm-hmm. I've been doing this pretty much every day for 40 years. Mm-hmm. So what is that? 12,000 plus times I have sat down and done this. Mm-hmm. I used to be good at math. I don't know if that math is, is incorrect. Um, yeah, four times 300, 1,200 out of 10. So 14, 15,000, however many times, pretty much. It. I don't take many days off. Mm-hmm. So there's... It would be harder for me not to get in that mindset because it's what my body is used to doing uh, every day. I tend to wake up around five, get up, go right. Mm-hmm. And like I said, that's it. I, I do not think about it the rest of the day. And how long do you spend with that writing? Um, usually I'm 
I come down about seven or seven thirty. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had to learn to write quickly because I was working a full time job, and I really wanted to write. And what I realized is I felt like shit if I didn't complete a poem. Mm-hmm. It felt as if I didn't write. Mm-hmm. So I learned to finish. If I sat down to write, I was going to finish. Mm-hmm. Good or bad, it just finished the damn thing. And I'd also remembered hearing something John Lennon said about finishing. And that when you come back to something a second time, your mind, your life has often changed. And it can be really hard to get back to the feeling you had initially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I found yeah. that to be true. Mm-hmm. For me, for others, they need they this approach would destroy them. <laughs> uh, the daily writing would destroy them, mm-hmm. and we're different animals. Yeah. A friend of mine can only write when he feels like he has no choice. <laughs> and if he tried to do what I do, it would kill him. And if I tried to do what he does, I would probably kill him. <laughs> so we don't want. There's enough death. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Uh, well, let's hear. I want to um, keep some poems coming. Uh, I want to talk more, but but let's do another poem first. This is called Wanted to, Wanted to, Wanted to, Didn't Run. I've imagined a rainbow being raped without knowing what evil I'm really afraid of. Let's say all of it. Let's say every person is an iceberg with most of who they are or what they want obscured from view and the ship that runs into that iceberg and the cries of people trying not to drown and the unlistening stars. Now let's consider a different notion to sing against this theory. Every person is a piano being tuned by a deaf woman who hears with her fingers, who loves the honesty of wood who gives half her bologna sandwich to her dog. It's not that I love you, since we don't know each other, I say to myself every day in the mirror, but I want to love you. I can't remember at what age I realized the jobs I was most qualified for. Introverted fuck-up, metaphorical thumbsucker, didn't exist. But when I moved on to really good napkin folder and player of drums underwater, I started to see myself as a viable weather system or a coordinated thrashing of grass by wind. Do you know the sound of hundreds of birds taking off at the same time, like the skies drying in air after holding its breath for a century? Neither do I, but I'm determined to be that sound. Yeah, another great new poem by Bob Hickok, Wanted to, Wanted to, Wanted to, Didn't Run. Um, Bobby, you mentioned, uh, you know, first word, best word being, you know, partially bullshit. Uh, what is the, the bullshit part of that? Um, you know, and what is the, the valid part? I'll begin by, I guess, going back. Part of why I said what I did toward the end of my my last comments is it when we talk about how we write or talk about anything about us, it, it can be easy for people people to think you're you're trying to advocate for that for them or saying you know this is how people should be mm-hmm. um there are what i found is we really kind of fall into groups 
And those of us who write the way I do, who are basically in the first word, best word camp, who, who I actually prefer to think of it really as a performance, that mm -hmm. you do this often enough. And I've come to believe in this importance of completing a poem in one city. So it is kind of like a performance. It's going to live in that moment, but it, most of these will be crap. Most of what I write is crap. So most of it will be thrown out and should be thrown out. You stick with first word, best word. The danger is that you have no critical apparatus, that you're not being critical of your work. And that approach taken to an extreme could lead to that point. Mm -hmm. I know very few people who, who apply it that way. I think people who write like I write, what you tend to do is you throw out a lot of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I've also, one thing that I've enjoyed of late, and it could just be a feature of age, I've come to like not completing poems, uh, taking, like I, I wrote most of a poem today and I stopped before the end. I, I've kind of come to like having a different experience, mm -hmm. having to look out at the poem over a longer period of time. So I'll come to, back to it tomorrow, and if I still like it, I'll work on the end and potentially change it in ways that I wouldn't have in the past. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, a lot of the approach is still the same, but part accidentally, part intentionally, I'm trying to experience something different and seeing what that does to my poems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, more part of the artistic play. Um, do you, when you, uh, you know, I think of it as probably revising, you know, mid-process, you know, like you're, it's like sort of the revision is part of the creation, you know, so as you yes. go, what what level yeah. of, um, you know, magnification do you do that on? Is it usually by the line sort of as you're, once you get a line down, is that going to be the line? Do you go back and that one, two, two and a half hour sitting and, and change like the title and change the first line and cut things like that? Or do you just sort of get the momentum of it and then sort of keep catching that wave? What I'll go back to an earlier comment of mine. The, the limitation I faced with time, having to work a full-time job, and this was the design work I used to do was the standard number of hours was 56 hours a week. Hmm. Plus I had an hour commute either way. So I didn't have much time to write. What evolved for me pretty quickly was not advancing beyond that, which I was happy with. And largely I've maintained that approach hmm. to this day. Hmm. So I'll just see what shows up and then wait for something interesting and then write two, three lines hmm. and then go back and read it. If I don't like it, do whatever I need to do to either decide this is no good, I'm going to go in another direction, or get that where I want it to be, and then I push off from that. So by the time a poem is finished, um, I've read through parts of it potentially hundreds of times, even in a brief period of time. Hmm. So write a little read, write a little read, write a little read. Um, so there's, it's... I sometimes think of it almost like trying to straighten out a crumpled piece of paper. Hmm. Um, it's There's a process of continual smoothing 
that's going on mm-hmm. um, and decisions being made, sometimes dramatic. I could find I really need to change something at the top when I'm at the end. But usually the the work is being done as I go. So by the time I get to the end, I've I've shaped something that I believe in in that moment. Mm-hmm. And that's a big part of it. <laughs> yeah, in that you may not believe in it in another moment, <laughs> but in that moment, I believe in it. Uh-huh. Well, uh, let's hear another poem. Uh, keep keep them coming. Uh, what's next? This is called At the Reception. Everyone else had gone to dance around a man and woman lifted on chairs into the sky of the future of their love. When he pushed away his plate, rolled up his white sleeved sleeve, showed me the number on his arm and rubbed it as if asking it to grant him three wishes. I imagine he would have been tempted in the camp to mourn all of the ashes the wind carried on its shoulders across Poland, not knowing which were his mother, father, sister, had he not been so busy dying of hunger. I wanted to listen to the locomotive of his heart, to go to sleep on the pillow of his breath, and should have kissed him on the lips like a lover of life, or at least pulled a rose out of my ear to show him the magic of his survival had endured. But I think he would have said it wasn't magic, it was luck, that evil was so busy back then it couldn't get around to all the Jews, no matter how hard it tried. As I watched him shuffle away, I wondered what normal was for him, for anyone who'd seen human beings become bored with cruelty in that factory of death. Later, I saw him dancing with his cane since he couldn't dance with the ashes of his wife. He'd shown me her picture. She looked the way most people look in photos, plain, happy, alive. And that was Bob Hickok again with At the Reception, another uh, newer poem. Um, so fun getting to look at forthcoming poems that haven't been uh, haven't been out yet from Bob Hickok. Um, but we mentioned, uh, I was looking through our uh, last conversation four years ago um, on Rattlecast 19, and one of the things we didn't mention that we usually talk about is your, your background. I mean, we, we briefly, we already discussed, you know, you were, you were working a, a full-time, more than full-time job um, as a tool-and-die designer, um, you know, be, as your poetry career started to take off. Um, can, can you explain a little bit about what, what work you were doing? Does that, your process there relate to the way you construct poems now? Is there some kind of connection that you can see, or is it something that you just happen to be doing, and then poetry is something else you happen to be doing, and, and one kind of took off that you loved, and, and that's the story? The work I did, um, so I designed automotive dies which are large steel objects that stamp out car parts. Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff I did was mostly kind of big parts, doors, hoods, that sort of thing. And I did that for about 20 years. The actual work, if I if I showed you what I did, it would hurt your eyes. <laughs> um, lines on top of lines, lines, circles, other shapes that are really hard to understand if you're not really used to looking to these drawings, looking at these drawings. But the way I think it's similar, what I've come to realize over time is I like making stuff. <laughs> um, 
that's the common theme for me. That was kind of like writing. You would begin. It was different in that you knew what the end product had to be. Mm -hmm. It's not like Ford Motor was going to say, well, you tell us what our, you know, left side door is going to look like on the 1992 Mustang. But how you got there was in many ways up to you. So you would begin with blank, in this case, sheets of Mylar, and later on a blank computer screen. And the process of, of constructing things, I've come to realize, just thrills me no end. It's what I like about writing poems. It's what I've come to like about working on our house. Mm -hmm. um, I've had to learn, and I've happily learned a lot about working on houses. And I'm kind of a sucker for any kind of creation. Mm -hmm. That to me would be the the through line with that work. Yeah, well, it makes perfect sense. You know, the word poetry comes from to make. You know, poetry or makers, <laughs> and so, um, you know, so that's uh, that really fits. How did you end up in that job? Was that something? Uh, <laughs> did you have an inkling that you wanted to be a writer no. before that, or how did how did that come? Writing, to I knew about. Um, I was writing by that point, but I, I didn't know about publication. I didn't know about MFA programs, all that whole world at that time. I finished, my, I went to an experimental university place called William James College, which was part of what's now Grand Valley State University in Michigan. And I finished up and as I was finishing up the college was reorganized and they said well you have to take things like algebra which I did in sixth grade and I really didn't want to take algebra I had a liberal arts degree or should have had mm -hmm. so I'm finishing up and I said okay I'll take care of these requirements when I'm in graduate school and the graduate school I got into was for library science I didn't know what I wanted to do, and someone suggested library science. So I got ex accepted at uh, University of Michigan's library science program. Did a semester there, realized I didn't want to have anything to do with library science. So I dropped that. I never finished my degree, and I needed a job. And I was mowing lawns, um, doing a lot of the work, and the guy wouldn't give me a raise, so I got pissed. And my dad arranged a job at a design company uh, for what was called a runner. I thought I would just do this for the summer. I would make blueprints. I would drive and pick up drawings that they needed dropped off or pick up drawings that they needed brought back. And it turned out I had a knack for the work. Mm. And that ended up being my career for, as I said, 20 years. Yeah, um, I've tended to find what I want to do by trying stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're, many of us are more knock around than we're kind of collectively comfortable admitting. It's something that I, I worry about with students. There's so much pressure to know what they want to do. And many of us kind of bump into things and it's like, well, I didn't like that. So I'll try this and hopefully stumble on things that we like. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's so true. I mean, that you have no idea. You know, I had no idea I'd be doing this. This is the last thing in the world I thought I'd be doing is, uh, you know, interviewing a poet <laughs> for a show. And then here you are, you just kind of bump into things. Like, and that's all of uh, what chemistry is and what life comes from, too. I mean, biology is just things bumping into each other. So, yeah. Yeah. What did you think you would be doing? Oh, I was a molecular biology major. I was working in uh, an RNA. I was trying to you know, synthesize, you know, chemicals or pharmaceuticals was what I thought would be really useful. I mean, it's, it seemed like um, mRNA stuff was uh, the future. So I worked in an mRNA, mRNA lab uh, way back hmm. in t- 2000, 2002, 2003, 2004. Yeah. Wow. And then I, I was, and I just uh, didn't, I decided I didn't like it. It was too narrow and too focused and I didn't have the love of it that everybody else did. So I kind of moved on to what was more interesting, which was uh, at first it was working uh, at a group home for mentally ill adults. I felt like that was really rewarding. And yeah. then, uh, but I liked poetry and writing too. And then I ended up here after being offered this job. So it just kind of came, I don't know, I never would have thought it. In fact, my dad used to make fun of me. He'd call me the poet because I like to write poems. I'm like, no way, dad, that's ridiculous. And then here I am. So he was right. Wow. I like that. <laughs> Um, well, let's hear another poem, and then I, have, uh, I should say, if anybody has any questions for Bob, we already have at least uh, one good question in. If you have any questions for Bob, leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube, and I'll pass along some questions, too. Uh, we have a couple good questions, both, so we'll, we'll do that. But let's hear another poem, Bob. Called Progress in the Middle Ages. The king kept a book of lists. Rivers I own, heads I've had removed inspiring things for the queen to say while I am on top of her trying to produce an heir. But his favorite was reasons not to be king. And of the reasons not to be king, it would be nice to think people love me for who I am was the saddest. His dog, though, loved everything about him. The sound of his voice, the smell of his knees, the way the king pet his head after he'd killed a rabbit. The king crossed off. Your grunts are the poems the muses would write if they had but an ounce of your grace, my grace, and drew a cloud that started to rain. When he looked at the list the next day, there was a lake below where the cloud had been and a man rowing a boat across the lake. Strangely happy to be out of control, to have no dominion over the lake or the man. He called his dog and they went for a walk, one wagging on the outside, one on the inside. Finally, he told the queen, please say whatever you want to say. A few days after their son was born, the king wrote the briefest of his lists, ways to be happy while wearing a crown. Take the crown off and set it on a table beside a candle or a spoon. And that was Progress in the Middle Ages by Bob Hickok. Um, so let me see. We have uh, some questions from the the audience. Um, uh, Monica Dobo, so really good follow-up question. She says, if you had all the time in the world at your hand, would you be as creative? Or do you think there's something about coercion, the lack of time, that sparks our imagination? Yes. Um, thank you for saying I'm creative. I would <laughs> bait you on that anywhere, anytime. Um, I absolutely think there's something to that. I, there have been, what, maybe not the best thing to say. When I started teaching, I had more time. Mm-hmm. Um, if you are fortunate to get one of 
these teaching, nice teaching jobs, you, the demands on your time are simply not what they are for most of us. Um, it didn't really change anything, but I also didn't expand the time I chose to write, which was something that indicated to me I really like or need that compression. And I've also noticed in times when I, in periods when I've really been stretched for time, um, I think I've done some of my most interesting work. Hmm. And I think there is something about pressure. When it's pressure doing something you want, when it's pressure doing something you don't want to do, I think all kinds of damage can be done to you and and others. But when it's something you want to do, mm -hmm. that desire can pull us through. Hmm. Um, and it's like, well, I have less time, so I'm just <laughs> I'm just going to be even quicker in these decisions uh, because I still want the end result. Yeah, there's there's something. Do you think um, to the way that it is the subconscious speaking? Do you think that if you're if you're really busy, you don't have as much time to just internally process your emotions? Like you don't know what's going on or what you know connections you make throughout the day, and you're you're focused on so many other tasks that you're sort of there's sort of a deficit of the kind of um, you know thinking that that poetry does. Yes, I think it's a. I think that is part of it, and another part of it is if you do this often, you come to understand, again, unconsciously, that this is where I take care of my shit. <laughs> so that's another reason you look forward to it, that you, you don't even have to tell yourself this is going on, but I absolutely know it's the case for me, that things I don't attend to or don't have time to attend to, I will hear, and also I like the way I attend to my stuff here. Mm -hmm. And one, one thing that tells me that is if I write, I can deal with a lot of crap in the day. And it, in many ways, doesn't bother me. If I can't write, and it usually takes only a day, or I don't like what I've written, doesn't take that long before, in a sense, shit starts backing up. And it will get in in my day in a way that I don't like. Hmm. Um, well, let's, uh, let's do another poem and then, and then keep talking. Uh, this is called True Story. And escaped the possibility I was meant to own a Zamboni, but got stuck with three can openers instead. Or that I should have kissed your knees last night when you got home from being with your friend who just had her cat killed. I know I'm supposed to write put to sleep, but can she wake her up now? No. And it was kind of you to rush over right after work and you deserved praise in some form and your knees don't get enough attention, I guess I'm saying. Where would we have gone on the Zamboni? Dunno, but how is certain, slowly. Here's a headline you never have to worry about. Three Canadians killed in Zamboni drag racing accident. I'd buy a newspaper to tell the world how much I love you. Tons, gee gobs. And how many cats have we cried over so far? Four. And one dog, and soon we'll start adding parents to that list. 
Then one of us will look at empty chairs around the house and hate them. So knees, elbows, hair, and of course the more famous bits. I kiss thee in life and in poems, which are not life, more like a flashlight turned on in a black hole. Gigobs is a lot. Gigobs squared is more accurate. But is a mount really the correct measure of love? I love you greenly, gymnastically, variously and stradivariously. I love you with my heart shadow and my brain fog and my suitcase packing skills. The suitcase I'm packing for when you go to the next room and I have to follow. Poor kitty, poor friend, poor us. We who have to deal with mortality using a limited toolkit. There's crying, drinking, toking, injecting, breaking dishes and popsicle sticks, and loving longer and softer those who remain. How long ago did there cease to be a time I can remember being without you? 1897, I think. The year the jumping jack was invented, the year levitating was added to the Olympics, the year I first dreamed I was alive and saw you coming around the corner and thought, so this is the famous happiness I've heard so much about. Mm -hmm. And that was another poem by Bob Hickok, True Story. Um, thanks for sharing that, Bob. Um, <laughs> I should say, uh, please do, if you're enjoying this uh, conversation and reading, please do click the like button. It's good to remind people in the middle, uh, there's, you know, dozens or 50-something people just on YouTube alone watching right now. Only 18 likes, so click the like button if you haven't yet. That really helps these uh, poems be recommended to other people, and that's what we want to do, is have more people listening to great poetry um, on Facebook, too, and um, share it. It's a one-click button there. Anything you do really helps. So, um, Bob, you mentioned, you know, teaching and that sort of the, the lucky few who get to do that. Um, it used to be, you know, a, a more easy thing to get into, you know, to, to crack that. There were so many, you know, growing programs, new opportunities, you know, in the 80s and 90s. And um, now those things are drying up, you know, programs are closing. Um, and there's this huge, massive amount of students that have graduated with MFAs and stuff. So it's a really difficult thing um, to, to try to pursue, because um, the the odds of getting a um, you know some kind of a good you know academic job are lower and lower every year. Um, do you find uh, first of all, did you find that when you got to that point where you could teach and just have that be the way you earn income, um, it, it, was it sort of what it was cracked up to be? Like, it, what do you really enjoy teaching? And then, uh, in, well, answer that first. I'm, I'm curious about that. The situation is different in that it was not. A dream. I think because I came to writing, to publishing late, both my awareness of it and then my participation in it, and because I didn't go through an MFA at the point most people do, I ended up getting a low residency MFA because by the time I decided I wanted to teach, I was told, you'll need the degree to get the job. Mm -hmm. And I actually got the job at Virginia Tech while I was getting that degree, I decided to finish, and I'm, I'm glad I did. But because of kind of the weird order of things for me, I had not been dreaming of uh, a teaching gig. I, for years, I thought it was, would simply not be an option for me mm -hmm. because I, I didn't have the degree. And it, I would hear people talk about it, but it was not really something I thought of. So I came to it without 
many expectations. I think the most surprising thing about academia to me, and this is not particular to MFA programs, is the degree of special specialization and the extent to which that kind of not pushes faculty away from each other so much as doesn't really allow them to come together. Um, people are so focused reasonably on their careers, on their research, on their writing. And universities themselves don't have a lot of ways that they bring faculty together. Mm -hmm. So intellectually, it ended up, these ended up being lonelier places than I had imagined for many years. Mm -hmm. This is separate from any thought of teaching. I imagine universities to be places where folks who work there you know, sat around and talked about ideas. And while that absolutely can go on, it's, there's not a lot of it in my experience. Mm -hmm. um, I've liked teaching. I'm like a lot of people though, if I'm honest, teaching was not something I sought out. Mm -hmm. And one of the stranger things about universities is that you are reward, rewarded for the success of your research for a poet that would be publishing. Teaching is often secondary, a secondary concern. And that too surprised me. I didn't realize that that was kind of the foundation of these places. Mm -hmm. um, I don't like workshops. The teaching I like best is actually one-on-one. -on -one. Oh yeah. I've come to believe that the workshop model is not really the way to go about this, that it's primarily an economic model. Yeah. That allows people to, you know, pay someone like me and get enough folks who are paying tuition in front of them that the trade-off economically works. Mm -hmm. But this really should be like any craft, an apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. But there's just there's not the economic wherewithal to handle it that way. Yeah, I mean, it really it functions like a pyramid scheme. You know, it's like the the people at the bottom of the pyramid pay the people at the top, and if you get to the top, you get paid, and if not, you don't. Uh, but when when I bring that up, there's the corollary that what other option is there? Like, would you rather not have there be programs? You know, or you not where you yeah. can you know meet and get to know a poet like Bob Hickok and and get his advice on poetry and writing. So, um, yeah, yeah. I've been really honest with undergrads who say they're interested in the programs. Mm -hmm. I begin, first thing I ask them, I say, do you come from money? <laughs> and no one so far has said they come from money. Because I, I was waiting for someone to say, yes, I said, great, you don't need to worry about it. Go get an MFA. Um, but I tell people, you should expect you're going to be flipping burgers on the other end of this, mm -hmm. that there is no job waiting for you. And this has been the case for me all the way along. Um, and that if you feel you can teach yourself to write, these may not be, MFA programs may not be right for you. But if you like the idea of hanging out with writers, and I tell them, I mean, primarily the students, but also the faculty for two or three years, this is kind of the only gig, kind of the only way to do it. But I... I don't think we've been collectively honest enough with each other about what is at the end of this process for most people. And it, mm -hmm. 
um, has pained me that we're not. Yeah. Um, I, I'm trying to find the question. Uh, I can't, so I can say who asked, but somebody had asked, um, uh, what was the best advice or, or what would you tell a student that seems like the most productive thing you can say as a teacher? Is there something that you find yourself sort of giving the same advice because it's helpful? This will be disappointing because it's, to me, it really is the only advice, right? Put your ass in the chair. And if you find you don't, you find you're, you're not doing that, you're probably telling yourself something. Mm -hmm. um, because this is like anything someone gets good at. This is something that takes iterations. It takes work. Mm -hmm. It takes repetition. And a lot of folks who... You can kind of tell the folks who really... One of the ways to tell someone who's kind of the real deal is they don't have to be pushed to write. They, you kind of have to hold them back. Mm -hmm. um, so the, it ends up being advice that maybe you don't need to give, but it's the only advice that has really made sense to me. Mm -hmm. That in the corollary is read. Yeah. Write mm -hmm. and read, write and read. So uh, somebody else asked, I think it was uh, Mary Torgrosa over on Facebook, uh, what poets um, do you like to read lately? Are there a certain sort of type of poet or certain poets that jump out at you? Um, it changes over time, although there are some folks who are constant, like um, just looking down. The books that are folded open are the ones I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. And Frank O'Hara's Massive Collected that's he's kind of a staple for mm -hmm. me um a book by francesca bell and a book by a guy bert myers who i had not heard of the folks down in houston have this um i forget the name of it something masters basically kind of forgotten masters hmm. and bert myers i think is a california poet yeah, I remember uh, somebody really? saying I should read him, and I can't remember uh, who or when, but the name jumps out as something I was like, I'm going <laughs> to look into that in heaven. And I'm, I'm sure Francesco would love to hear that you, you have her book open there. She's been a guest twice, too. Um, I like her poems. Yeah, yeah, she's great. Yeah. It, and another, you know, another poet who came to poetry late in life. I mean, you think there's, or not really poetry late in life, but, you know, came to publishing and, and pursuing it seriously. You know, she, um, you know, sort of famously didn't graduate high school and started writing later. No. And, and I think that's one of the things that makes her poetry special. But do you think there's something to that? Like, would you advise people to do go live something, go work in a different job for a while and then, and then try an MFA maybe? Yeah. Um, again, or I mean, this is so complicated. If you've got your heart set on them, Godspeed, go. What we've lost, this kind of goes back to the specialization that I was talking about at universities. You can learn to do this on your own. This is not, people learn to do this for a very long time without being taught how to do it. And I, it's not, I don't say that as a way of attacking education or the MFA programs, but I think as a culture, we've bought into this idea a bit too much that to do something, you need someone to teach you. Mm -hmm. um, and I say that because one of the things that I think shows up with the people who 
um, come to this for, for in a kind of what is now a kind of sideways manner, they tend to be different. Mm-hmm. And even just in kind of naked terms, in terms of success, being different will do you good. Um, it's harder to be different or maintain that difference if you come to people at the wrong time and they start telling you what you're doing right and what you're doing wrong. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I think that may be the thing for people to give a lot of thought to if they are interested in an MFA program. Yeah. Just am I fully formed enough that I can listen to what people say, but I can go, no, yeah, no, no, yes, yes, no, you're crazy. You're absolutely right. And I didn't want to admit that and do that kind of sifting. Mm hmm. Because end of the day, you're the one who needs to decide. This is they're your poems. Yeah, is that is that why you prefer the the one on one teaching? Because it's sort of you get to nurture yeah. that that difference and that strangeness. And yes, without you can resistance. protect yeah. it. And it's I think it's also important for the discussion of a poem to be a conversation. And the basic structure of the workshop, where someone sits and people talk to them. I understand why we do that, because a lot of times people want to defend their poems, which is stupid. <laughs> but you really, I want this to be a conversation because I want to know what is behind what's on the page. Why did this show up? Because why things showed up is actually more important when you're learning things than what showed up. <laughs> and it's virtually impossible to have those conversations in a class. Yeah. Whereas one-on-one, the I can be really honest about why I'm responding a certain way. And the other person could be really honest about what they had hoped would go on, what they intended, what they were thinking when they wrote something. So it, it, it takes time. It takes that give and take. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think we have time for about two more poems, Bob. Do you want to read the, the second to last one you'll share? Having had a little bit of enough. Perhaps we should stab an evil person and then go to a church or temple or mosque and ask one of the holy people we find there to excuse our behavior based on the idea that it was the knife's fault. Probably we should stare at clouds instead and tell each other which dead president or extinct species of beetle that one over there looks like. No, the other one. The other other one. Reading the news these days makes me want to put my head under a lawnmower for the peace and quiet. Also, a bit of the suicide would be nice. Just a dab. I don't really want to die with my boots on. First, I'd have to buy some boots. And second, I'd have to go to the boot store to buy some boots. And third, I'd have to buy a horse to go with the boots. And I don't have enough room for my depression as it is, let alone my depression on top of a horse. Evil people doing evil things. Maybe what I meant to say is we should stab an evil person with the stuffed bear they were probably denied as a child. Whatever. We have to try something, don't we, to make this a better world? Not a better world, not a bitter world, not a butter world, although I can see merits in all of those. A better world. And no, not a world where you can bet whenever you want on whatever you want though we seem to be going down that road. Vegas will let you slap dough down on anything, 
even the when and how of the apocalypse, though not the why. There's no mystery to the why, because. And what would a better world look like? That's easy, different. Yeah, that's uh, Having Had a Little Bit of Enough by Bob Hickok. And there's a lot of um, you know, existential anxiety, maybe you could call it, in, in your poems um, here and in, in Water Look Away. Do you think that's something that you've always felt that's coming to the surface more? Do you think that's a symptom of the modern era? Um, or do you think that, or is that just the, the natural state of humans? Like we know that we will die, you know? I mean, that's part of the thing about realizing we're naked or whatever in, the, in Genesis was trying to describe, you know, um, that we're vulnerable to that. Um, do, you, do you think that there's something growing in you uh, that has to do with that? Or, do you th- or is that something that's always been there? I think both. I think it, it has always been there. Um, but these these are these are special times. These are really difficult times to go through um, economically, politically, in particular. Um, so I think there's there's a heightened sense of kind of collective anxiety that I've found myself wanting to write about um, more often these days. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you, um, 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 lost my train of thought for a second. I was going to ask about, well, I'll, I'll ask this question instead. Cause I, uh, it was a question that interrupted my thought flow <laughs> and it was, um, given that your, your, your style of writing is so stream of conscious, like the free thought, first thought, best thought type, how do you improve at that process? You know, what is the, um, how does improvement happen? And would it be, I mean, my guess would be trying to keep, find ways to not bore yourself. Is that, uh, is that what it would be? Trying to stay interested in what you're doing, you know, as you get used to what you've already done? Um, not boring myself is probably the primary driver of how I, it's largely, I think, I'm largely attracting, attracting, um, trying to follow, find and follow just what interests me. Mm-hmm. But I th- I'll go back to something I touched on earlier, but the kind of the poems that pop up that are different. Part of changing, I think, is is recognizing your limitations. One of the things that I hate about readings is when I look over my poems, I hate them. I hate, I just, I cannot stand them. It took me so long to come up with a group of poems that I thought I could stomach long enough (laughs) to do this. And I've realized over time, part of that is just a recognition of everything I can't do. Mm. Um, There's a poem in front of me that I came across the other day called Teleology by a woman I'd not heard of, a young woman named Willie Lynn. And I really like this poem, and it's different from what I do. And I I think looking for difference in what you do and following it and trying to change your work over time, the same way hopefully we're trying to change ourselves, is really important. And it's really hard to do mm-hmm. because 
things that have taken a shape, you bend them out of that shape, they want to come back to that shape. So the water look away would be an extreme example of how I've done that for myself. Mm-hmm. And I could point out in books and also in plenty of stuff that never made it into books, how I've tried to cultivate something that is different. Um, so I, I think intentional change is a huge part of doing this. It's just the hardest thing any of us will ever do. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a good question here from Laura B. And I should add this to my list of sort of regular questions. It's a good one. She says, uh, does writing bring you joy or rather ease pain? Um, brings me joy. Yeah. Brings me joy. Yeah. Brings me joy. And uh, that brings to mind the uh, ease his pain yeah. from uh, <laughs> uh, the baseball movie. But it, I, I, I don't know why. I'll never really understand why. I love writing. Mm-hmm. The process interests me far more than the result. Yeah. When I write, I feel immense i feel i can do anything as soon as i'm done with my the my own poems and anything else that mm-hmm. that feeling goes away yeah do you do you and ever it, it has to do i think with that disappearance that you hear musicians talk about a lot they just kind of go away mm-hmm. the way that we become the process more than ourselves i i find is deeply meditative mm-hmm. yeah it's that that flow state that dissolution of self that you know athletes yeah. have speaking of athletes before yeah. that's the you know that's why you have to practice the free throws or the layups is because you have to be in the flow state while playing or else you're not going to play well and yeah you know, the same thing for writing um um, so, so you, we've been reading books from a forthcoming manuscript, I suppose. How does that work? The creation of a book? I mean, water look away seems like it had a very clear beginning and end to start with, but how do you know when you have a book of poems? Is there some way that you, you see, oh, I've been writing about this for a while. Now I'm done. And that was a time when I was writing sort of with these concerns. Do you just like, oh, there's 40 poems I like. How does it go? It's, it's, um, I think a feature of time. And just the realization that a lot of poems have piled up. And then I start a process, which I do not like, which does not bring me joy. <laughs> of just sifting through them, coming up with what I think is a book, and then having that sit around the house and picking that up in odd moments mm-hmm. and responding to it, kind of when I don't think I'm going to be looking at it. So I can kind of experience the poems as if I don't know them. I find I'm much more honest if I look at something all of a sudden. It's like, okay, yeah, you actually don't like that poem, so it's got to go. But it's it's more a feature of time than anything. I don't, by and large, have project books. So Hmm. things pile up and I kind of want to move through the pile <laughs> yeah that makes a lot of sense do you look through are there any you mentioned not liking poems after you've written them do you ever actually like like a poem like do you could you look back i mean insomnia diaries probably my one of my all-time favorite books do you look through a poem in there and you say oh 
I love that poem. <laughs> or do you feel the same kind of way about them now that the moment's passed? And that was an old Bob, an old you know incarnation of this character, and I don't care for it anymore. I basically don't open them. <laughs> I don't open the books. Although it's funny that you say that. I happened, I looked at that book a couple of months ago, and I was kind of shocked that I liked. I opened it and I read a poem and I liked it. <laughs> And I said, okay, I'm going to close the book and just well, maybe I was let that if you be get, an experience. If you get far enough away, maybe it's a stranger, you know, like the, the yeah. you when you were 35 or 40 or whatever is not the same you now. And maybe uh, you can have that distance and enjoy your own poems again. No, I hope, I hope so. I, I've been thinking I should probably put together a selected, but the idea of going through the books and doing that is yeah. Well, somebody it's else. far more appealing to me to write new poems. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Well, recruit somebody else. They could do it for you. <laughs> um, well, I think we're out of time, Bob. So let's do uh, one last poem to close it out. Okay. This is a poem for and about Gerald Stern. It's called A Little Wave of My Hand Goodbye. This weird, spiky, prehistoric-looking bug kept trying to sneak inside because it's getting cold and Gerald Stern has died and left a hole in romanticism that will never be filled. I remember him as uglier than a shoe run over by a car in the rain and as beautiful as every tree with moonlight in its hair. I met him once in person and often in my hands holding books and turning pages. Will there be books 200 years from now, people? I gave the bug a dollar and told it I'm jealous that it can fly and found a picture of Stern and Jack Gilbert looking together and alive for what's left of forever in Pittsburgh, where steel once grew like apples once grew in every backyard when I was a child. You know the saying, throw a rock and you'll hit a poet trying to lasso the wind. I remember him as hungrier than any man to love with a voice, part tuba, heart velvet suit with the Garden of Eden and its lapel. If poetry is starlight clearing its throat, the harumph and guffaw of the light of time, someone should tell us. Someone did. Uh, that's great. Great poem to end on to, Bob. A Little Wave of My Hand Goodbye by Bob Hickok. <laughs> Perfect closing poem. Thanks so much for being a guest, Bob. It's just a great pleasure to have you on. And I'm glad, you know, since you don't do this kind of stuff much, it's really an honor to have you here. Well, thank you again, Tim, for having me and for Rattle, for everything you do for Rattle and those of us who read it and enjoy it. So. Well, thank you. Yep. Take care, Bob. Thanks. I appreciate it. It was Bob Hickok. Um, and of course, his newest book is Water Look Away. You can find that where all fine books are sold, including coppercanyonpress.org. Bob Hickok as well um, and doesn't have um, any website, I don't think, as far as I know. He didn't last time anyway. He doesn't have any social media presence. He just writes poems. And then uh, when the time has come that there are too many to stack <laughs> he publishes a book so that's bob water look away is the newest one though and it is a great collection really different from his other work so concise compared to uh what you're used to um but thanks to for bob for being a guest tonight now we're gonna go to our prompt lines and uh, of course the open lines have now become the prompt lines it's been several months and of that so it should be known did i do this right yet let me see. I have to fix this again. I keep forgetting to, that I update this now. So the um, 
Let's see, the prompt for this week was to... There we go. The prompt for this week was to write a poem addressing a pain from childhood that uses a refrain. Uh, and that was a uh, inspired by uh, last week guest Joshua Mensch's poems in his book, uh, Because. And uh, that is the prompt for this week. Now, how it works, if you'd like to join us, is... Um, find, first of all, email me your poem to promptlines, promptlines at rattle.com. That way I can show the poem on screen like I was showing with Bob's poems as you read them. Um, submit one poem only, two pages max. That's the rule. If they're super, super short, like, you know, haiku and things like that, feel free to fill up a whole page or whatever. But, um, but, but one poem only, two pages max, based on the prompt. These are the prompt lines. And then find the Zoom link, which I'm about to share on Facebook and YouTube. So uh, watch for that link. And I will paste it in right now, and you can join us. Watch me rearrange the chairs a little bit behind the scenes. That's always fun. Um, but if you would like to just listen and enjoy the poems that we have for our prompt lines, then sit tight right where you are, um, because you don't have to join. Don't join the Zoom. It's better to watch on YouTube or Facebook. Um, but if you would like to share, um, please do join. And uh, let me go. Let me get the, the link there. And I'll be right back, though, uh, with more poetry. And we're back. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. So I'm having a little trouble logging into the prompt line's email address. So Katie is going to talk to you for a second about... Um, about the amazing interview we all just watched, which I enjoyed greatly. I thought it was fascinating, in particular, talking about uh, Bob Hickok's process, which I was really interested in with how prolific he is. And also the idea of you know him writing more experimental poetry and you know liking not being bored which is important it is very important <laughs> not important. to be bored yeah um yeah let's see that's what so there was a no i can keep talking about that interview all day don't worry about the interview. i'll keep talking about the interview no i also um i was really happy personally because it wasn't so far from how i feel about my own writing with how i write really fast and i was thinking about how i think i'm a much better writer after having kids where i have no time to write and being like this is your 30 minutes make the most of it lady and then i just have to get in there and write because that's my chance to write for the day so yeah definitely <laughs> or the 20 minutes i had this morning for my own poem. yeah you do cru cruise through the poems you yeah. definitely do well, I had to. And when I did the thing where um, I write on plane rides, that really, like, and I get prompts where I have to write, like, ten poems in two hours, that really forces you because you're not going to, like, no-show a poem for your friend. So that helped me write faster, too. And I tend to think, um, as you've said before, Tim, that the best poems tend to come out fast, you know? They definitely do. That's true. Yeah. So if you're laboring through a poem, it's not the best sign. So I definitely didn't do that for my prompt poem this week that I wrote in about <laughs> 10 minutes and was kind of nervous to share for that reason, too. It was a little less time. And I also wrote it on my phone, which I almost never do because we've been a little busy this week. Yeah, we have. Moving to a new studio. We are moving into... <laughs> Yeah, this is the last one in this one. Okay, so uh, email your poem instead. Because for some reason, I don't know why, it's not letting me log in. I have the password, and it just comes up with a blank screen. Will the open mic work? Let me try this. Well, there's no shame in submittable. There we go. Wait, oh, yeah. I have no idea what was happening. Anyway, oh. now that we've had that exciting... Um, hey, bit... I think people enjoy 
<laughs> seeing me panic again. Aww. I don't know what was going on, though. It made no sense. But anyway. <laughs> so now we are ready for the uh, prompt lines. Yes. And so let's start out. The prompt for this week was to... I'll put it on screen right here. Okay. It was to write a poem that addresses a pain from childhood Mm -hmm. and uses a refrain. Mm -hmm. So what did you come up with, Katie? Do you have the, can you read it off the screen? I can read it off the screen. I'm wearing my contacts and I'm equipped (laughs) to read something that's two and a half feet in front of me. Excellent. Okay. All right. So this is technically an American sonnet, which, you know, sometimes poems just come out 14 lines and we get to slap that label on them. And that's an example of this one. Yes, we do. Okay. After pain. I remember prodding my puffy eyes in the mirror, how crying made my blues turn green, how I was a toad stuck in the mud, wondering again why he had to come after me. I remember climbing up trees to look down instead of be looked down on, the sap that still clings to my hair. I remember almost jumping to anywhere that wasn't there. Ah, great last line, as always, Kitty. After Pain by Kitty Dozier, our prompt poems editor. So uh, makes up a prompt and then writes one herself every week. And now mine, uh, I, I, I thought... Uh, I didn't realize, okay, I'm going to be honest. I didn't okay. realize, I forgot that the refrain was part, I started to write a poem because the, the childhood pain reminded me of this little anecdote. Okay. And I started to write a poem and then I remembered there had to be a refrain halfway through where I already decided <laughs> it was going to be a hybrid. And so, <laughs> the same thing. You're not even joking. Really? I went for a hybrid. I was like, oh, how do I work the refrain into well, a hybrid? I, Never mind. <laughs> I just went with it. Oh, So this I is like a hybrid with a refrain. Oh, so here nice. it is. This is House of Straw. Two boys in the classroom, bored and a poke in a back with a pencil. Stop. The teacher at the blackboard, green sea, little waves of chalk from the sponge used to clean it, a poke in the back with a pencil. Stop. The problem, a road trip, car X and car Y, the miles per gallon and the distance between a poke in the back with a pencil. If you poke me one more time, I'll make you sorry. There's the answer in miles, but around and around the car circle, a Celtic knot carved in the wood of the desk, metallic tint to the lead, and a poke in the back with a pencil, and wincing not at the pain, but that he has to divorce papers. A poke in the back with a pencil. Oh, well that done. That is my hyphen with a refrain. That is so, well done. Wow, that would have been you. so funny if we don't both <laughs> on hybens with a refrain. I, I was like, if I'd had 30 minutes to write, I probably would have attempted that. But that was great. I really loved yeah. the pace. Always fun to hear Tim Green read a poem fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, written, written on the plane, too, in a little notebook. <laughs> so uh, that was our prompt poems for this week. Let's see uh, what everybody else here has. And Katie Dozier, our prompt poems editor, reminds me <laughs> that we were supposed to be uh, revealing the prompt poem of the month winner. I think let's just to make it clean, let's do it at the end. What do you think? At yeah, I end? think we should do it. We're going to heighten the suspense. Heighten the suspense. That's the whole plan. That was the whole reason. <laughs> I, yep. The whole, it was just an act. That was my acting yeah. skills, having been, uh, you know, flustered, <laughs> not being able to log into the uh, right account. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, now that you know, you're in on the little secret. We'll reveal that. Right at the end. <laughs> so um, let's go. And I also, though, too, I wanted to check to see if the uh, person was here. Yeah. Because yeah. I wasn't sure if they were going to be able to join or not. Mm-hmm. And so far, well, we'll find out. Let's see. <laughs> Keep the suspense up. Um, let's see. Next, we have Dick Westheimer. Well, hello. Hey, Hi. Dick. Uh, thank you so much for that interview. That was uh, 
I, I, I detected Tim, you being a little bit starstruck, which I've never seen. <laughs> well, he is, you know, I, I mentioned this the last time, but, but when he was on earlier, but he's one of the, those first poets, you know, where I was, I didn't realize I liked poetry all that much. I read a couple of his earlier books because one was assigned in class, got the other one at the library and was like, wow, this poetry stuff is really interesting. <laughs> and so yeah. when you, when you talk to somebody like that, it's just a strange progression, you know, of, of admiring somebody's writing and, you know, falling in love with poetry because of them. And then you just talking to them like it's a, a regular zoom call. It's neat. <laughs> well, one of the, one of the things I, I noticed is how, how much he trusts readers. Mm-hmm. Um, he just leaps all over the place and, 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 you know, obviously because of his craft and <clears throat> stuff, he takes you along, but he just trusts trust you as a reader to to make those leaps with him which is uh, really instructive for me yeah yeah and that idea too like it's a he calls it a performance you know the act of writing itself and he's sort of performing for himself at the same time as everybody else and so he has to like you know entertain and trust himself and then because he does that it engages with other people it's it's an interesting way to look at it it's terrific well speaking of trusting i didn't trust that i would get through this prompt it, it was a double double challenge um and and partly because well you'll see in the poem that that the the pain from then doesn't resonate now so yeah, that's a good point mm-hmm. identify it as pain um and so for a while i was thinking i, I didn't have any pain as a you know the, there's nothing here for me and then and then figuring out what refrain it, anyway, it was a challenge. Mm-hmm. So we'll see if it worked. And and it's another attempt at a um, hymen. We'll see. Another hymen with a refer- <laughs> I thought I was original. <laughs> well, you are original. <laughs> I, I do not. I do not have the freight train reading uh, rhythm in this poem that you had. In. <laughs> well, thanks. Uh, here, uh, and the title's changed a little bit from what you have there. But here we go. Now I see what's kept in the box in the back of the barn. Drawn on the box, I see where big bully David and his buddies threw my book bag over the chain link fence. I see the badge Alex Z ripped from my safety patrol belt. I see tucked below all that the cackling mask of the boy who called me fag in gym class. I see it again and again being chosen last. And I see all these things wrapped in a moist towel that snapped against my bare skin in the locker room after swim lessons. Then I pry open the box and see fossilized artifacts from a museum of me. I turn them in my hand to try to feel how it felt to be that boy. I am like an archaeologist attempting to discover the pathos and passions of an ancient by studying shards and bones. All I see is covered in dust, and then, beneath it all, I see a rolled-up scrap from a scroll written in a hand that looks like mine. This is why, it says, when you shine the brightest, you won't be able to see yourself at all. Gazing at the stars, an old man remembers. Oh, that's great. Love the haiku at the end, Dick, which is always a sign of a good hyphen, as we know. Yeah, that's great. Thanks so much for sharing that. Thanks, Tim. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That was Dick Westheimer with, uh, well, this version is what's kept in the box in the back of the barn. And um, 
Yeah, and you know, it reminds me, you know, this whole thing so far, how similar childhood pains are. You know, I mean, we all go through kind of a similar type of content. Um, let's see, Carolyn Cod is up next. Hi, Carolyn. Hi. Yeah, great to see you. How are you doing today? Yeah, pretty well. Um, when I when I saw the prompt, I I decided I didn't even want to think about it because there's so much pain and trouble going on, and also I've been having pain in my arms and shoulders, mm. so I just didn't want to think about pain. But um, Friday night, in the middle of the night, I woke up with some words and I jotted them down, ah. and I had some things to do Saturday morning by. But by the middle of the day, I wrote this from those words. Oh, great. So it's called um, Scared to Death. I was five years old, Mother's Day at church. They made me recite a poem. I froze. I was scared to death. Later on, Christmas time. Again, they made me recite a poem. I struggled to remember the lines. I was scared to death. Finally, years later, another occasion. I wrote a little something. They asked me to read it. They seemed to like it. And I was no longer scared to death. Oh, that's Aww. great. What a memory. That's yeah. so sweet. And now you read poems almost every week. <laughs> that's true. You do. That's scary. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not. Thanks so much, Carolyn. It's always such a pleasure. <laughs> Take care. You too. Yeah, that was Carolyn Codd with Scared to Death and proof that you should not be scared to death to share your prompt poems on the prompt lines. That right? is proof. I still sometimes get a little <laughs> nervous, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> uh, oh, oh. Well, let's go to Nate Jacob. He's shaking in his boots over here. <laughs> <laughs> nervous already. <laughs> hey, so, guys. Yeah, how you doing this week? I'm good. How are you guys? We're good. great. Yeah. My wife has given me a hard time every week. Uh, when I show her my video of me, she's <laughs> upset that I don't ask you back how you're doing. Uh, so. Aww. <laughs> well, the <laughs> but you should tell your wife that if everybody does that, then we just say the same thing over yeah. and over again. So it's yeah. it makes sense. It's the logical thing. Mm -hmm. I'll yeah. highlight this part. Thank you. In fact, I try not to say how are you doing. I say, what do I try to say instead? I'm like, say, great, great to good to see you. you. That's better. Yeah. <laughs> if I'm about to say that, I reverse. And pivot. I kind of slap him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Because I don't yeah. want to force anybody <laughs> no. to ask too, so that's a good, <laughs> it's a good point, etiquette, yeah. but yet in, yeah. in this context, yeah. unnecessary. But anyway, <laughs> well, hey, and it was also nice with uh, Bob's interview to find out that I'm not the only one who hates his poems after he writes them. Turns out I'm just like Bob. So <laughs> the future looks bright. <laughs> I went ahead and wrote a, about a childhood pain, though. Mm -hmm. um, it was hard. I didn't want to write a sad poem. Uh, so I thought about writing ab about the French word pain, which is bread. Uh -huh. I did not. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I did not. But uh, I'll go ahead and read the one I did write. Uh, Father's Lullaby about the concept of place by way of eviction. These things happen all the time, son, to better people, more deserving too. But who picks up the pieces better? No one. No one dumps them into damp liquor boxes and moves on to more of the same like us. These things happen no matter what you do, no matter how your father or mother work, no matter the opinion of gods nor their plans too. No matter the weather or the weather not, it's not just us. It can't be just us. 
these things happen for a reason, son. And if you look inside, deep inside, deeper, you may finally agree that maybe no one but you had to do with all the mess you endure. Shame isn't in poverty. It's in the blame. It's us. These things happen no matter what you do. Destiny or karma or some other higher law demand that justice be laid at your feet. It's you. Justice, in your case, may look to you too, like paying the price for another's malice. By the time you figure it all out, son, you may realize the dirty secret truth. Mercy is that these things happen all as one, in every direction and at every moment. Now sleep in the spindly arms of injustice. A great last line. Yeah. I think we all sleep in the spindly arms of injustice a little too often. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. I love the no weather to weather. Now it's not in front of me. No matter the weather or the weather not. That's clever, Nate Jacobs. <laughs> well, thanks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, very nice. Yeah, excellent poem. Thanks, thanks for the great show. Man. Yeah, thanks, Nate. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah, it was Nate Jacobs with Father's Lullaby about the concept of place by way of eviction. Very interesting poem. And um, so Mari Smith mentioned he doesn't want to read, so you're still here. But if you change your mind, leave another chat message. We'll go to Laura Berg instead next. Okay, I, I, I'm embarrassed that I didn't do a refrain, I, but I got part of this. Um, well, that's it. it. As long as it inspires a poem, that's yes. all I care about, to be, to be honest. It's a work in progress, so here we go. Um, memory poem. I admit I can be afraid to read great books, afraid I won't remember authors or plots. Just the sensibility, like a cirrus cloud's wisp of sphinx or the scent of aubergines sparking on a grill, or professors' voices in the study deepening with sherry. What was the story? Why did it move me? I'm ashamed to be so porous. Raised in the shadow of those great trained minds of Eastern Europe that command waggle rove within the noble ovals of their skulls, delft blue eyes gazing down upon me, puzzled by my lightheadedness. What could have gone amiss after modeling for me over and over how to grip knowledge like a bench vice? Listen, I will turn this handle and millie by millie let the metal jaws relax, unscrew my courage from its sticking point, being ever so careful so my brain doesn't drop, and gather up a great book I haven't yet or did and forgot, but won't let this deter me. Read, skip some pages, loop back, feel my way. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for sharing that, Laura. Another excellent poem. The childhood pains just keep coming up, and we we address them though and fight through. Good. It's a memory poem by Laura Berg. Thanks for sharing that, Laura. Right. And now, let's see who do we have next. Uh, Zachary Honeycutt is here. Does he have a prompt poem? <laughs> we'll see. The mystery is is out. Let's see, Zachary. Do you have a prompt poem? <laughs> I do have a prompt poem. I have a very special prompt poem about my childhood doggy that passed away oh, uh, when I'm I was sorry fifteen. To hear that. Yeah, she was uh, my best friend uh, and the second character from my novel that I wrote a poem about. Hmm. That I'm going to be reading tonight. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. Haley is the yin to trapezius's yang she's the uh old wise woman the old kind of like master yoda type dog Mm -hmm. that uh is in charge of the rest of the pack in the novel 
And then in reality, she was my best friend. She would sleep by my bed every night and she would patrol the house and she would watch over the house. And sometimes she would even like tuck her head in the door crack by my room or she would just like walk by my room and look in to see me and then she would go on her patrol and yeah she was she was like a little human she she you know she didn't have arms but she'd stick her head through the blinds and like use her head to open the blinds to look through the window which i describe very vividly like in one of the paragraphs in the first chapter of my book but she's a great character so whenever i write about haley like my poetry comes to life. So this is probably one of my favorite poems that I wrote about her, and it is a villanelle. Yes. Well, let's hear it, Zach. Respite for Zachary. Mourn her not so oft where she is lying. The soul is lighter than your weighted heart. A barking wind now at ease with sighing. Tight-lipped, eyes-sunk, See life's laws complying. For her, you thought the rules were set apart. Mourn her not so oft where she is lying. Your feelings thick as gusts until dying. She, a breeze that passed when you felt it start. A barking wind now at ease with sighing. You basked in the gaze she aired not trying. An air of wisdom her most human part. Mourn her not so oft where she is lying. You, the artist, drew her gentle smiling? No, she drew out that shading of your art, a barking wind now at ease with sighing. Leave that place like her soul left you crying. This dame, tail wagging, who roams on is smart. Mourn her not so oft where she is lying. A barking wind now at ease with sighing. Ah, uh, that's excellent, Zagra. I always, I love a villanelle, and uh, I knew that uh, there'd be some chances of a good villanelle coming in. Excellent work, as always. I like the barking wind a lot on that line. So definitely my favorite line. Yeah, that's true. I was wondering about, Zach, do you uh, meter your villanelles? Or do you, do you think you should be metered? Or do you just, uh, you're, you're just metering it naturally. This one, I wrote this one in college. I think that this one was by ear. Uh-huh. I don't think I super planned this one, but you know, sometimes I do. It just depends. If I feel like really focusing on the meter, I will. But yeah, I also write by ear. This one I think was by ear. Yeah. Gosh, well, very yeah. cool. Definitely it reminds me of two, uh, my German shepherd when we go on hikes. Always, uh, you know, if the kids are straggling or something, he comes around and like makes sure he finds <laughs> them and then gets behind. Then he runs to the front of the line, makes sure that everyone else is still there, kind of herding us along the trail. <laughs> so, yeah, he's, yeah. The, he's the guardian of the pack. Yep, there. for sure. <laughs> Definitely. That's what, it, that's what dogs can be. Thanks for sharing that, Zachary. Yeah. See you guys next time. Yep, take care. Bye-bye. Zachary Honeycutt with Respite for Zachary. Um, next, we have um, Eva Christine. I believe Eva's been on before. Hello. Hi. Hi. Yeah, great to see you. Yeah, I decided to join again. It's really fun. 
Yeah, thanks so much for being here. So yeah, um, it's, it's intimidating, but it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it shouldn't be. We're just all friends hanging out, and you can watch me mess up like in real time and prove that it doesn't. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 I'm not alone. <laughs> um, so okay, so I have this poem here on when I could not fly. Um, that's the one. Yes, right? mm-hmm. I actually did try to fly. You did. So it was oh, really painful <laughs> when I found out you could not fly. So I wrote um, when I could not fly by Eva Christine. No one was around me, so I thought it would be the perfect timing to try. I left the door behind me. I ran to the very top of the hill, top of the hill, got my shoes ready, and I decided to fly. One, two, three. No one beside me. I grab a hold of the branch. It broke and slid all the way down, down, down the hill, thinking that something, thinking that something the more, more than the ground was going to catch me. I ran up the hill to try again and again. Why doesn't this work? I asked myself to begin. Why can't I get going? Why can't I fly? I want to leave. I need to leave. This is not who I meant to be anymore nor who I want to be. Let's try again on the count to three. Oh, Aww. that's great. Love that ending. Yeah, yeah. me too. Makes me want to <laughs> try you. it. I don't... Ending with some hope. Yeah. We can all go out. Yeah. Blaze of Careful glory. Careful what tree you hold. The birch tree is probably the best one to get a hold of. Good idea. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Love that bending of birches. Pulled yeah. The frost. <laughs> Hanging on that, swinging. Yeah, excellent uh, childhood memories. Thanks for sharing that, Eva. Thank you. Thank yeah. you, guys. That was Eva Christine with... Uh, her poem, When I Could Not Fly. Um, next up, we have uh, Paul Mitchell Bernstein. <clears throat> hey, Paul, good to see you. Good to see you guys, too. Thank you, uh, as always, for for hosting this. Thanks for the interview. Um, I will, let me pull up the piece. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's a real short piece. Uh, I wrote it real quick. Mm-hmm. And like Katie was saying, it not quick and I didn't know whether or not I should share it or and it's in an odd style that I sometimes write in um, where I sort of separate um, my inner dialogue into a, a literary character mm-hmm. and uh, and I do that mostly when I'm doing um, sort of uh, autobiographical stuff or stuff from my childhood. Uh-huh. Anyway, so I submitted this to Rattle, and I think I wrote in the comment this poem is about a bullying, regret, and the voices in my head. It's called Spermstain's Lament. Mm-hmm. A tall, slack-jawed boy with curly black hair and a stupid smile, turning screws on Joe, winding him up. He squeezes his neck, slaps his back, What's up, Spermstein? Making fun of his name. What's up? Squeezing his shoulder, slapping his back, his stupid lock, his stupid laugh, his dog shit brain. Punch him in his fucking gut, turning screws on Joe. Spermstein, Spermstein. Excellent. Really interesting refrain there, uh, Paul. And it definitely, it, there's so many uh, experiences that are really common. You know, that we all yeah. feel and share, like that bullying thing. Yeah. You know, I hopefully uh, these days at school, there's less of that. But there was a lot when I was a kid. That's yeah. for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's really creative to use an antagonistic name used on you as the refrain in the poem. That's very creative. 
It is. I talk about taking ownership of that now. Now you have, you know, turned that on its yeah, head from question, anybody like, saying that. Do I want to put you. that out there to the world? Like, fuck it, why not? Yeah. <laughs> the answer should always be yes, I've realized. So, yeah, definitely. Thanks, thanks for, sharing for sharing that, Paul. Yep. Yeah. Thanks, Katie. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. But that was Paul Mitchell Bernstein with a Sperm Stains Lament. Um, Andrew Trudinik is up next. Hi, guys. Hey, How Andrew. Are you? Great to see you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've got a um, an actual memory from um, school days. Um, it was set in 1969 when I was in the sixth grade, and mm. um, and I knew this guy in the early 70s as well, kind of. Um, and yeah, it, it's a it's a it's just a one-off painful memory of bullying, and yet the memory of it stuck with me, mm-hmm. and. You know, so I don't, I don't know if I feel it in a way, but I guess I do. You know um, what I mean? It's one yeah, I definitely of... know. Yeah, it's still there. That, the you know, yeah. <laughs> wanting revenge so too. This is <laughs> actually a true story. Mm-hmm. This is actually what happened, and um, yeah, the details are, are kind of true too. So, well, as I remember them, anyway. A school memory. Robert hit me. One afternoon after school in 1969, we were in sixth grade. I wonder why. Tall, wiry glasses. He took off my glasses first. He was from a long way away, 3,000 kilometres from our boarding school. I wondered why. He'd not long arrived, a breaking home, his parents' plantation owners. He had one of the then new small transistor radios in the sixth grade. He played the tremolos on his new record player in the ninth. And he had serious stereo stereo gear by the twelfth. We didn't speak much in those seven years. But at the 20th school reunion, he said to me that I hadn't aged a bit. I wondered why about that too. (laughs) And a decade before that reunion, I'd met a young man who lived in his hometown in the 1970s. The same hometown. I wondered, why had he heard of the family? And uh, my friend said, ah, yes, pleasure seekers. I saw recently from a photo of him with his adult daughter that he's back there now. I wondered why just the two of them. Robert hit me one afternoon after school in sixth grade. I wonder why. Hmm. Yes. Cool so, memory. Yeah, yeah. It's a story of bullying and it's a story of uh, a guy that I had not, almost nothing to do with after that, except we were in the same year at school. Mm-hmm. And um, so we knew each other, but didn't really have any contact. And then. But I realised when I'd actually looked up his where he is now that I I was interested enough to find out. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I, you know and, and you think, gosh, you know, so maybe I haven't forgotten, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, for sure. I haven't forgotten those who wronged me in my youth. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> I'm glad yeah. I can Google them. <laughs> for me, there's and, a and guy, I, yeah. I, I, uh-huh. I anonymised it a bit, but it, it was his actual name, so... <laughs> 
Yeah, well, no, nothing yeah. wrong with using real names. It's well, I don't know how it is in, in Australia, but here, if it's true, <laughs> it's not liable. So. <laughs> the truth defense. Yeah, the truth no, no, is a defense. For me, yeah, the, exact, yeah, the same story was Chris Norton. That's his name, Chris. If you're watching, <laughs> and I thought sometime when I grow up, I'm gonna punch him back. We were in Boy Scout or Cub Scouts in the basement. He was just like, "Hey, Tim!" I turned around. He punched me in the stomach, knocked the wind out of me. Yeah. And so I looked him up later because my class reunion was coming up, mm-hmm. like the twentieth or something. Mm-hmm. And um, and uh, he's now he is this like six foot five, like three hundred pounds of muscle with like tattoos <laughs> everywhere. And I decided not to punch him at the class reunion so. because violence is not the answer, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's that's why. why. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So um, so Chris, um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Sharing that. Well, that's right. Violence is not the answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, thanks so much uh, for sharing that, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the time, and and thanks for the great um, guest with um, with Bob Hickok. It was was really good. Thank Excellent. you. Yeah. Thanks so much. Glad you enjoyed it, Andrew. Thanks. Hey. Yeah. That was uh, Andrew uh, Tradinic with a school memory. <clears throat> uh, let's see. We have Bishwajit Mishra up next. Just a couple more people on the open lines. Prompt lines. Oh, I did it again. <laughs> Bish was it. Hey, how you doing? Hey, Tim and Katie. Hey. Hi. Yeah, great Hi. to see you. Good to see you guys. <laughs> we timed it at the same time. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was, I was looking forward to that interview with Bob Heacock. I mean, I didn't know her his name until you told in one of the episodes about the fighting poems, termination oh. poems. Mm-hmm. In, <laughs> So I and it got canceled last time. So I was and uh, I was really very very interesting interview. Yeah, I'm glad. Yeah, I and should the say way he, more than his poems. Uh, his uh, the matters he talked about the way so easily he talked about it, it just <laughs> it was brilliant. Yeah, great description of his process. Yeah, it was really fascinating to hear, and that's what I always wondered about too. And, uh, and I'm glad he could come back. He was originally scheduled for September. I, I didn't even mention, but then he had to, uh, couldn't make it, but then rescheduled. Really nice of him. And he makes it sound so easy and simple. The way yeah. he talks. Right? <laughs> just, just sit down and write some stuff, Bishop. It's no problem. <laughs> uh, okay. So, uh, like Dick, I almost didn't feel like, there was a, and everybody has pain, but I can think of something which could be interesting to others. Mm-hmm. And uh, it just came. Well, there and, you go. Uh, then I didn't want to send it because I don't like that subject anyway. But I'm like hooked, drugged to the process. Uh, <laughs> once you're right, you had to go through the whole thing, right? <laughs> so uh, I submitted it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have it right here. All yeah. the killing without punishment. Mm-hmm. It was the first ever killing and with a blunt knife performed without punishment. A nice Sunday morning was the proselyte's first kill. A prerequisite, not punishment. It was just a poor chicken, one of the many that get killed. Always a play without punishment. That's what even an acolyte is expected to do, to make a place. So why be pushed for punishment? I turned vegetarian and wipe out violence, resetting the drive to gain peace over punishment. Recalling that gory picnic of a winter holiday by a river. Maybe penance is my punishment. 
Oh, that's great. I love the use of the refrain there. Uh, it's sort of a hybrid between a guzzle and a uh, haiku, kind of, the way yeah. it works. It's really nice. I like the I, form. I, I slaughtered a chicken, the only one in my life, <laughs> with a blunt knife. I had never done that, just to show off. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and I, it just, I don't know how it came. I was doing my yoga. Mm -hmm. I, I, I decided I'm not going to write. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was doing my yoga and I was trying to meditate and suddenly this thing crops up. I said, no, I'm not right. <laughs> I don't, I don't. And then it pained me so much. Mm -hmm. I almost cried. Oh, thinking wow. about, I just, how painful it would have been to, to the mm -hmm. world. I was just trying to kill it like that. Yeah. And, uh, so here, you got it. I'm glad you decided <laughs> to write it. Yeah, those are the kind of things that have to come out from that subconscious. Yeah. It's true. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Have a good night. Yeah, thanks Thank so much, Bishwajit. Yeah, I appreciate it. That was Bishwajit Mishwajit. Bishwajit Mishra, sorry, with uh, the killing without punishment. And let's go really quickly. Um, Nivita Karthik sent one. He couldn't make it because of work today um, and asked us to read this. She says... Um, she says, I've written a poem on a refrain about a childhood pain. I think the most painful part of childhood is not recognizing and fully embracing the joys of childhood. That's a good point. Yeah. And we really don't like looking back. There's like a, I wish I appreciated that feel. Yeah. Excellent yeah. point. Nivy. This is something we realize only as adults. And so this, according to me, has to be the most painful part of childhood. So I wrote a poem about this. <clears throat> Okay, this is a short poem. Why did we forget to be children? And uh, here we go. This is Nivedita's poem. Um, why did we forget to be children? Why did we never delight in childhood when we, we were children? Why did we rush through days like fleeting whispers yearning to grow up? Why did we trade laughter for the weight of time's relentless march? Why did we not collect pebbles of happiness and string them into a necklace of memories? Why did we not dance with wonder and linger a little longer on the playground of innocence? Why, oh why, did we not savor childhood when we were children? Yeah, that's excellent. Uh, thanks so much for sharing that. It'd be a great point about, about childhood and, and, you know, we miss so much because we don't know to appreciate it yet. Yeah. Um, John Arthur is here. He just joined the room, and I think, uh, hey, John, it's a poet we've published in the past uh, a while ago, no. I believe. It's at a different John Arthur. So you're no, not Canadian. You, <laughs> no, you uh, you haven't published me, but you're going to in number eighty four, I believe. Well, ah, okay. Well, there's that. Oh, so that's funny. So I thought you were the same John Arthur, but it's good to, good to meet you. So where are you calling from? Uh, New Jersey. Ah, and what's the poem that's going to be in? I. Uh, it was called Wayfair. Ah, oh, yeah. That's a great poem. Yeah, Katie, Katie liked it, pulled it yeah. out of the old... That's one thing that we should say, too. Yeah. We have already published, I think, or you know, accepted for a publication, five poems from mm -hmm. the Prompt Lines uh, submission. So we, we've published the th four winners now, mm -hmm. but but another five additional poems, including uh, yours, John. Thanks yeah, so much. Yeah, which I loved. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, thank you. No, it's awesome. I've been reading for a long time, and uh, you know, I'm pretty, pretty excited about it, so... Excellent. Well, what do you have uh, to share with us tonight? I just sent you something. Sorry for being late. I was uh, putting a two-month-old to bed. So. Oh, oh good for you. <laughs> Fighting the good fight there. Excellent. Yeah, yeah for sure. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I have it up here. Louisville Slugger. So I can yeah. I can sense this one coming on, too. Have a little, a little experience <laughs> with the old slugger. But let's see. Okay, go All ahead. Right. Yeah, whenever you're ready, go ahead. One sec. Let me just... 
You were dad's old bat, a hand-me-down, gift-wrapped, and it was you I held when I broke the local home run record with a cold metal kiss. When I was done with you, he took you back, kept you beside his bed in case of intruders. Later, drunk, years after, my shoulders had grown broad enough to hurt him. I swung first, and he picked you up and swung you back. I felt your cold metal kiss for the first time in years. Mm. That's a rough poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, John. Thanks for having me. Yeah. yeah really yeah. nice to get to see you. Yeah. I think yeah. so. Keep reading. And I, I've been listening to this podcast for, during my commute for like six months straight because I drive so much you know, <laughs> oh. in New Jersey. So, uh-huh. yeah. Well, that's great. So glad you can. And, and thanks for writing that poem and the uh, the Wayfarer one, which is another excellent, yeah. similar style as far as yeah, the length and the, and the brevity, which mm-hmm. is what we loved about it. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for sharing both. Thanks. All right. Take care. It was John right. Arthur with our Louisville Slugger. Yeah. All right, and now, um, let's see. We're going to read one more poem. We have one more prompt poem. Um, Ted Guevara has, um, can't join us, so we'd love to share his poems. And he's got an image here, um, which is interesting. This is a, a photograph. Let me fix this. This is um, a, a girl laying down next to some chalk figures of a, a mom and daddy. Or so maybe a grandma and grandpa. Yeah. And here is Ted's poem, Down. Mommy warm in my closed eyes, mommy breathing in my closed eyes, mommy voices in my closed eyes, mommy beautiful in my closed eyes. I hug her, I hug her same, I can't, I hug her the same, I can't breathe. I'm in the crib, under my pillows, in the crib, under many pillows, the crib, under many pillows, I am far, I can't breathe. Hmm, a really moving poem there and in a very abstract way. Usually we say concrete images are so important, but that works really well yeah. in a sort of abstract, distanced way yeah. because of the refrain, I guess, or the multiple refrains. And because it speaks to how a child's trying to process the world, which is not as concretely as adults do. Exactly. Yeah, excellent yeah. point. Thanks for sharing that, Ted. Really interesting poem. It was Down by Ted Bernal Guevara. And now is the time oh. for the big reveal. And so... um so what do you have to say? So so who uh, was the winner of this year's prompt poem, or with this month's prompt poem of the month? First, I think we should say that maybe this was the more appropriate time to announce the winner because the winner this month is someone who has been sending poems with this pseudonym um, <laughs> for a long time to mm-hmm. the Rattlecast before it was the prop lines, when it was the open lines, that's sending true. a lot of poems that I've liked before. So that's definitely the first thing. And then secondly... Um, this was taken from the prompt that was inspired by Jamaica Baldwin. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a sonnet that has a title that has two blanks in it. So now we should just read the title <laughs> probably and say it. I'm not good at drawing this out. <laughs> okay. okay. So um, here is the poem that was this week's prompt poem of the month. The End of Hurt is Not Healing. Uh, by J.B. Penname. And we've had a lot of fun over the uh, the years <laughs> trying to figure out who J.P. J.B. Penname actually is. And we still don't know. <laughs> we still don't know. We we thought maybe um, J.B. would show up mm-hmm. and reveal herself or himself on the mm-hmm. uh, Zoom. But uh, no, from right from the start, uh, J.B. has had great poems that, mm-hmm. that they've sent us. Mm-hmm. And um, and this is no exception. It's an American sonnet mm-hmm. uh, based on or you know spun off of Jamaica Baldwin's. And I'll just mm-hmm. go ahead and... Uh, Read it. it? Yeah. Oh, you want to read it? Yeah, Yeah, go ahead. Okay, Okay. go ahead. The end of hurt is not healing. After Jamaica Baldwin. Whose bright idea was it to start tearing out pages of poetry and wadding them up to plug our wounds? The poems I like don't even come when you call them. 
as though they've forgotten their masters, lost the sound of their own names. They bear no antiseptics, cannot cauterize you clean, but the way they lick themselves is still good for a laugh. Is that what I aspire to? Five years ago, I nicked my finger slicing a carrot. Five years, and I can't even watch my father carve a turkey without getting secondhand please don't lose your goddamn fingers syndrome. But sure, when he's done, I can sit at the counter. In the quiet of the kitchen, I can eat the turkey. Man, what a turkey. Yeah, so great. I love so many lines in there. I love, But yeah. the best line, I think, is the... Um, uh, the poems I like don't even come when you call them. I know, <laughs> so. it's so great. It's also kind of the perfect poem to end this particular episode because we have the discussion of childhood hurt and how that is still an active thing. And that's mm-hmm. what so much of this poem is about, I think, here too. Yeah, for sure. And the play on hurt too. The multiple ways hurt operates in the poem yeah. is really interesting. A really good one by JB, who has had many good poems. Um, both, many good poems. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's a great way to illustrate how humor can allow us to get in deeper and digging deeper into painful things sometimes so mm-hmm. it was great there were a lot of really amazing poems this month i have to say it's not easy when i when i whittle it down woof. <laughs> yeah, some tough decisions maybe some extra will publish too though Who knows? yeah maybe so it's been it's been really fun getting to nominate some for for more publication too and i'm glad that some have been chosen like wayfair when we talked to john arthur which is cool because i love that poem so. yeah yeah that's a great poem mm-hmm. too and everybody can look forward to it in issue number 84 which is june uh, 2024, which sounds like a space age number, but that's only six months away. Ah. So, <laughs> um, now let's go, uh, let's say next week's uh, prompt mm-hmm. is going to be this right here. Do you want, can you read it? You want to read it? Do you want to read it? Cause you, this is your prompt. This that's week. true. You well, came up with this prompt. You don't have to, you don't have to acknowledge that. Yeah. <laughs> I came up with one and then Tim came up with his and it was better. So I conceded and we had this awesome prompt, which I'm looking All forward right. to. So. Well, anyway, this is a prompt. This is a technique that Bob uses a lot. Of, you notice Brendan Constantine is one mm-hmm. and then his episode, he talks a lot about this, about looking at things from a different perspective, mm-hmm. but the prompt is this to so use the Bob technique. Write a poem that begins with an idiomatic expression that you take literally or incorrectly and then see where it goes. I'm excited to write this yeah. one. It was good. It was the singer. You knew it was better than mine. <laughs> it's true. That's right. Well, I mean, yours was great, too. Though. Oh, thank you. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so, so just take any kind of you know, expression that you sort of lost the sense of what it originally meant, you know, mm-hmm. like it's raining cats and dogs or whatever mm-hmm. like that. And then make it, you know, take it literally or uh, incorrectly, like misinterpret it. I think this one's going to be a lot of fun. I'm excited. Yeah, I think so too. And I thought, I was just thinking after the childhood pain one, it'd be nice to have something that's more fun and playful. Yeah. So Mm -hmm. um, that is the prompt for this week. And uh, let's do the Saiku really quickly. And the Saiku is interesting. I almost brought it up during the show Mm -hmm. because it it really was a, it would have been a good segue to the science story. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, the story is this, um, which is from the University of Duke, or I guess Duke University, as the uh, <laughs> as the uh, uninitiated call it. So this is um, right here. Um, brittle stars. Let me get small enough so you can read it. There we go. Brittle stars can learn just fine, even without a brain. So these st- special starfish called these brittle stars don't have any kind of central nervous system. There's no like central housing in the middle of it that like coordinates. Each limb is like independent. And yet these brittle stars they found can be classically conditioned like Pavlov's dog. Whoa. So what the scientists did is they, um, um, they put them in tanks, of course, 
Um, and then dimmed the lights right before it was feeding time. Oh. So they dimmed the lights, fed them, dimmed the lights, fed them. With a control group, they sort of randomly dimmed the lights and fed them, so there was no mm-hmm. distinction. And then um, they started dimming the lights and not feeding them. And the starfish still came out, Ooh. expecting food, waiting for their dinner, just wow. like uh, sprinkles back there. <laughs> and, um, and, and even though they don't have a brain, they somehow mm-hmm. managed to be conditioned like this. Even, I think, as much as 30 days later, they still, if you dim the lights, they remembered that dimmer lights meant food Whoa. and come down without a brain. So how is that even possible? But it reminded me of Bob Hickok sitting down every day. Like my, you know, my subconscious comes out. This is the time the yeah. lights have started to not dim, but raise. Right. And the dawn is coming. The sun's coming mm-hmm. up and the poem comes up with a sun. Mm-hmm. And somehow maybe like the um, part of his little pinky mm-hmm. that actually makes poems, that secret creativity <laughs> part, realizes that it's day. And then it's time. Yeah. Yeah. So there we go. So that is the, uh, that's the, uh, the story that led to this little haiku. And the haiku is this, brittle stars, so much to learn and forget. Brittle stars, so much to learn and forget. That is your Psyche for the week, and that is the show for the week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, always a pleasure. Really wonderful talking to Bob. Doing these prompt lines with Katie is always a special treat, too, getting to be in the same place. I know. It's been too long. It wasn't supposed to be that long, but we're in the same room now, so that's the important thing. <laughs> that's true. Yeah, it's been, you know, it's been uh, about a month almost since we were in the same room doing it, but it's great to do that. So um, thanks, everybody, once again for being here. Uh, hope you enjoyed it. Now, um, next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be Greg Kosmicki. Now, Greg is another poet we publish a lot in Rattle. I don't know who's published more often in Rattle, Bob Hickok or Greg Kosmicki. Kosmicki uh, he's, you know, he's one of those people that we've gotten a bunch of poems from. He was the longtime editor of... Um, um, which press is it called? I can't remember. There's a press in Nebraska that he was a longtime editor of. It's a great press. They publish a lot of great books. He retired from that, you know, teaching gig and, and doing the press. Um, moved to San Diego. Came out with another book, We Eat the Earth, uh, which is his next book coming up. And that's Greg Kosmicki, Rattlecast number 223, Monday, December 11th. The regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. And your prompts, which are going to be write a poem that begins with an idiomatic expression that you take literally or incorrectly and see where it goes. Um, That'll be the Rattlecast 223. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I'll talk to you later. Good night. (laughs) Have a good night, everybody. Bye. Bye.